Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast, of course, where our core objective is to explore all things people stuff in leadership. And my overarching objective is to expand your perspective when it comes to people. By doing so, I'm hoping that you'll become a more wise and compassionate leader. So big call, big agenda. That's what we're about. If you like what we're about, you can increase your bonus karma for the day by rating this podcast. If you go to ratethispodcast.com slash Zoe, that's Z-O-E, ratethispodcast.com slash Zoe, that would be really, really great. It does help spread the news about the podcast and raise its visibility on all the podcast platforms. So that's your good deed of the day taken care of. So let's move on and talk about our wonderful guest who's on the show. Our theme is around change, and he answers some really juicy questions. What is a change maker? How do we design for inspiration? And how to find and wrestle your big question to the ground, and why you might want to do that. This interview was like poetry, I reckon. My guest's name is Digby Scott. He's a friend of mine. I've known him for a couple of years. He's a fellow thought leader, and he's one of the people I admire and respect and enjoy so much in this world. He's got a really fascinating background. He is a former chartered accountant, which you would never, ever guess from meeting him. He's such a relaxed, chilled out, gregarious, fun-loving dude, which does not fit any stereotype when it comes to a chartered accountant. No offense intended for any existing chartered accountants, but it does surprise me. It doesn't seem to fit who he is right now. He's extremely down-to-earth. He's fun-loving. He is poetic. He's written this great book, Changemakers, Make Your Mark with More Impact and Less Drama. He's also a surfer and a snowboarder, and we get along like a house on fire, and we love wrestling with the big questions. So listen in, let's do this thing. Oh, I forgot before we cross over to the interview itself, he mentions a ton of books. We're both avid readers, and Digby's got a, a few key recommendations in this interview. So you can get those links at zoerouth.com slash podcast slash Digby Scott. The link will be in the show note descriptions just underneath this episode. So you can click right through on whatever device you're listening to and you can access it that way. Okay, without further ado, let's do it. Woohoo! We have one of the most amazing people that I know on the podcast today. I'm so thrilled that you're here, Digby. <laughs> Thanks, Zoe. It's nice to see you uh, for 2020. First time we've connected. Yeah, I know. It's been good. And well, though we see each other on the socials in our respective skiing places, it's good to see you uh, <laughs> via camera and have you on the audio. I'm so excited to share your insight with our podcast listeners because you have such a wealth of wisdom when it comes to leadership and change and development. And you and I have had many a wonderful conversation around these things. So uh, let's ask the tough question first, which every leadership expert kind of dreads and kind of should have an answer for. So here it is. How do you define leadership and when did you know you had the aptitude for it? Yeah, let's get the hard ones out of the way, right? That's things a good <laughs> practice. Uh, you know, I'm buying time right here. <laughs> but I think I reckon how do I define leadership? It's pursuing a vision and enabling others who want to come with you to be their best on the journey. So to me, it's really quite simple. It's like there's a couple of elements, right? So one is you've got some sort of better or different future that you're pursuing and you have agency in helping to create, right? And you are moving towards that. Uh, and the other bit is the others. It's all about people and it always has been and it always will be. It's not really about you, leadership. It's about this idea of a 
different future that you want others to help create with you. And to me, those two things together are future and people and enabling those people is really what leadership's all about. Yeah, and that's the, that's the work that you absolutely love. Like, I know you're such a people person. You love facilitating groups and teams. So the, the second part of the question is, like, when did you know you had the agency to do that kind of work? Yeah, I don't reckon there was one epiphany moment around this. I think it's been a gradual, slow dawning. Then, then one day I reckon I looked back and went, oh, yeah, okay, I'm owning it. I think there's been a number of moments. It's funny. There's one I remember I did out with Bound uh, probably did 20. You? Yeah, yeah, over here in New Zealand, a place called Anakiwa in the Marble Sounds. And I think it was like an 11-day program or something. And, you know, there was this orienteering sort of thing we had to do overnight. We had to go through the, the mountains and find our way through dense bush. And I remember I was with this group. I must have been about 26 years old, 25 or something. And I remember that we were trying to get to this peak and we were going along this uh, through the bush. We didn't really have much of a line of sight. We were heading down into this valley rather than along a ridge. And everyone's going, no, 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 this is the way to go. This is the way to go. And I didn't really know these people very well. And I remember just calling out stop. And there was about eight of us, I think. And I was just one of the group. And I, I just felt compelled to, I just knew that something wasn't right. And I just, I just called, I said, stop, we're actually supposed to be heading up. And my instinct and my knowledge says, we're going in completely the wrong direction. Can we just stop and take stock? And it turned out that, yeah, we were heading way down into this sort of ravine and we changed direction and we made it to the top of this peak. And the lesson for me there was, I had to listen to my instinct and act. And to me, that's an act of leadership. Uh, and it took a lot of courage for me. I, I, because I was actually working as a, a national manager of a recruitment company in my, my day job. And I was pretty young to do that, you know, mid to late 20s. And I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. And I didn't really know what leadership meant. And there was this sort of this voice that was channeled up through me in that instance on that orienteering thing and it was like oh wow that's what leadership looks like and it was kind of like this clunk so actually maybe it was an epiphany moment I didn't plan it it wasn't a head thing it was more like no I just have to say this and we have to do something differently so being a circuit breaker and, a, and, and, and offering a different way of thinking and acting was what it was all about so that was one and I think there's probably been a few of those over the 25 plus years since then as well. What, what I love about that, the story, right? Like that's a great example of where you had the courage to say something and you were right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about the times when we still require the courage to say something and it's wrong? Have you, do you remember any time like that? <laughs> do I remember any time? Uh, I reckon they happen all the time. Uh, <laughs> and I, I kind of go... Maybe it's not wrong, but it's about, well, actually that probably didn't serve as well as it could have. So I've actually just come off a call with my team and they are asking me, what do you want, Digby? Like we need to make an executive decision here about something we're doing. And I made, I made a particular call, uh, which was to shift a date out for an event that we're running. Now, as I said it, I went, 
I felt like, I don't know whether it's the right call or not. It feels like the right call, but it may not be right. We have to give this a go. Uh, so what I notice a lot of the time now is I'm better at making decisions because I think I'm more comfortable with, it's not about the binary right or wrong. It's about, let's try it. It feels right. But if it's wrong or it doesn't work, then we're going to learn something from this. And so to me, I can't remember a particular time, but I think my habit is more around, now just make a decision and see what we learn as opposed to uh, the binary right or wrong. So there's probably not answering the question directly, but there's, I think there's a lesson in that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And mm. it comes back to what's our tolerance for failure or rather than yes. failure, experimentation, what's our approach totally. to experimentation? Oh, I'm huge on that. I have a saying, you know, be an experimentalist. Uh, and, you know, and in that, there's the mentalist bit, which is like the mind. But like everything's an experiment. We're making it up all the time. All the rules that we have to live our lives are invented. You know, everything's invented. So we might as well just test, is there a different way or a better way? And if you have that experiment, mentalist mindset, which to be honest, is the same as being a scientist. Right. You know, it's the, it's the scientific method of have a hypothesis, design an experiment, do it, and then analyze it and see what you learn, right? And then rinse and repeat. And the more you can, I reckon, have that as your mindset as a leader, as a change maker, I think you move faster, you create more stuff, you create more learning. Um, and I talk about delivery and discovery as being sort of bedfellows. You know, you're always having to deliver stuff, make stuff happen. Um, but if you're not focused on the discovery bit of that, then all you're doing is just going around the circles, making stuff happen. But are you improving? Are you learning? Are you growing? And so the experimentalist mindset is about being able to blend delivery and discovery together in a, I think, a, a better way for a VUCA world you know, where everything's complex and messy. You've always got to have that learning lens on. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I'm guessing that's one of the key principles that you've embedded in, in your program, Changemakers. And I wanted to ask you about that, that whole ethos archetype of being a changemaker. What is it in your mind? Can you flesh that out a bit? Yeah. A changemaker is, in my mind, someone who is the restless go-getter who wants more for the world. And in that, that restlessness, you know, I think, you know, there's sometimes there's this voice inside you that, you can't let go of or it won't let go of you about something that you want to see different in the world. Uh, it's not about you. It's about the world. And it's about making the world a better place. And the change maker is the one who's prepared to get off their chuff and do something about that. And I think that's the difference between a wannabe and a, a real change maker. Um, and I, I distinguish between seekers and players and makers and, and seekers are the ones who are like, kind of waiting for the right thing or someone to tell them what to do. They're seeking permission or direction. A player is someone who's out there shaking it up. And then a, a maker is actually designing a whole new way of doing things. And David White, the poet said, what you can plan is too small for you to live. Whoa, say that again. What you can plan is too small for you to live. So change makers, it's not, their skill isn't really planning their skill is in being able to ask a really big question about, you know, how could the world be different? How do I contribute to that? And then it's about being able to go, have the savvy and the smarts and the conviction to see that through, to keep going, uh, to be able to sit with discomfort, to sit with bumping up against the status quo and still keep moving uh, and learn from that. One of my favorite change makers is a lady here in New Zealand called Gillian Brooks. And, 
she has a big question, which is how do we put human beings at the center of our economic systems and how can I contribute to that? And I like this lady already. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And she's someone you should interview on your podcast. I reckon Um, she's leading the charge in New Zealand around the conversation around flexible workplaces. Um, She's one of the big voices in New Zealand or emergent voices here in New Zealand around that issue. And that's a big thing. She's got an economist background and an HR background and she's kind of got this big systems view of the world, but she's just getting on with it. Now I'm inspired by her because she, when she landed on that big question, she then went, well, there's my next 10 years work. And she's kind of got this fuel that just keeps her going. And, you know, not everyone's going to agree with what she's saying. Um, And at the same time, because she's got this vision and this question that she's pursuing, people are really attracted to that. And the right people are becoming more and more attracted to it. So what is a change for Someone's going, yep, there's something that can be different. I want to contribute to that. I'm going to get on with it. And then they build the capabilities. I talk about four C's of change makers. You know, they've got the conviction, which is a sense of purpose and bigger question that they're trying to land. Uh, They've got curiosity. They're always learning. They're great at building connections, the third C. Um, So great at building a community around them, a tribe uh, of both, you know, critical friends, but also huge advocates. And the last one is courage, that they're willing to step into the unknown without being guaranteed of success. And they're willing to um, try the new and the different to see what happens because it's the right thing to do. So, yeah. That's great. I love surrounding myself with people like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We need more of them in the world, right? We need more people who have got that, I think. So I've got a, um, a question about how to come up with the big question. How do you actually come up with a big question? I mean, you said that's a change maker asks a big question uh, that rattles the cage. Like, how do you do that? I mean, that's a skill in itself. You bet. In fact, in the change makers uh, program that I run, you know, basically the first six months is, is, is wrestling your big questions to the ground. <laughs> and uh, I think the trick is actually to stop and listen. Uh, there's an author, Parker J. Palmer, and he talks about let your purpose find you as opposed to you go and try to discover it. And he talks about, I think his, his book's called Let Your Life Speak. And his idea is that your life is trying to tell you what you're all about and what your purpose is. And if you just stop and listen, and I'd build on that to say, like, well, listen for what you can't let go of. And I talked about that earlier in, the, in our chat, is that you know, there's a niggling question. There's, a, there's another good one, which is what makes you angry? What really makes you furious? And what's that really about? Like what values does that speak to? When you see something in the world that you go, ah, I wish that wasn't so. That's a good clue that there's a big question. So, so what could your question be about? Another one I heard yesterday that was a lovely way into this, which is what breaks your heart? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what breaks your heart? It's like... And we had a lady uh, come and talk to us yesterday. We had a Change Makers Day yesterday. And she's tackling child poverty in New Zealand. She works for the government. And the unit she works for, the mission is to you know, significantly reduce child poverty in New Zealand or, or be catalysts for that. And you know, that broke a lot of people's hearts hearing some of the stories. And you could see people go, oh, maybe that's where I want to contribute. 
you know, something around that system. So it's about listening to what goes on inside you when the injustices, what stuff that makes you angry breaks your heart. I reckon that's a good place to start. And then turn that energy into a question. How can I contribute to blah, is often a good way to phrase a big question. So I'm wondering, like, the way that those questions sort of start with diagnosing problems and seeking a better future by solving those problems or improving them. Is there, on the other side or the other end of the spectrum, like, it's good now, how can we make it better? Is that, is that another way of looking at it? Because I'm, I'm wondering if a change maker is all about fixing problems or whether it's accelerating the good stuff. Yeah, that's a great uh, frame, isn't it? I, I often talk about the two lenses. One is problem solving and the other one is possibility generating. And problem solving is about making stuff go away. Yeah. And that's a, one lens. Possibility generating is about bringing more of the better, more of the new and the good and the, the stuff we want to have happen and amplifying that. So I think really the healthy lens is a, is, is a balance of both because if, if it's all about possibility generating, it can be a little bit, uh, woo woo. <laughs> it can be a little bit to, you know, where are the foundations? Because vast majority of thing of, of the population has a problem solving mindset, make bad things go away and let's get back to normal. And I have a little saying, meet them where they're at. And so when you, if you can help people solve or alleviate problems, I think that's a good thing. It's not enough though. You can make bad things go away or pain go away. That's good. But what, I was saying to someone yesterday that my vision is that we have way more dialogue in the public arena about what do we want as opposed to what do we don't want. Mm. And uh, the, so looping it back to the big question, I think there's the invitation for both in the big question. One is about the problem you want to have go away, but what, what replaces it or what evolves from it? And in fact, yesterday we were talking about the child poverty issue. It was okay, child poverty is reduced, but what replaces it was probably about children thriving. Right. So, and so there's something about the big question could be in that case, you know, how do I contribute to a, a, a society where all children thrive? That's a I compelling that. question, right? Yeah. And so you've got me thinking about the importance of having those two lenses. One is about mm. the go away and the other one's about bringing into being. Mm. I think you're right. Like if we stay stuck on the problem, we just we stay stuck on the problem. And I talked about this yesterday in a Real Talk Masterclass I ran when we talked about breaking out of the drama triangle, which is Stephen Cartman's work. And the transition from feeling like a victim is you get off the problem, focusing on the problem and woe is me to the problem, and you ask about possibility. So there is a juggernaut or a lever that we need to pull in order to get out of victim into that learner stage. And, and I was curious about that as I was asking that question. If we're but the way that you talked about it, it's not just the problem, it's solving the problem. And then the next step is growing into something more beautiful. So I like that though both lenses need to be there and that there's a, a critical part that we need to jump yeah. on to make sure that we, we stay out of drama and into creative, yeah. into creativity. Yeah. I remember it's, uh, was it Tim Galway? He, you know, he wrote the book, The Inner Game, back in the 70s. And he was a tennis coach. And in a game of tennis, yeah, great book. Yeah, yeah, and and originally, and and he it's quite revolutionary his approach because, uh, and he was one of those. I think he was one of the people who popularized this idea of you know, um, make sure your language is clear because if your language is focused on don't hit the ball into the net, what comes up in your mind is the ball, the picture of the ball going to the net, whereas it's actually I'm aiming for the ball to go into the back right corner. 
that's where we'll go. So, you know, what you think about is where you go. So there's uh, something that the language, the power of language I'm really into, hey, as an idea here. So this idea of, you know, framing possibility as opposed to solving problems. Yeah. So I'm curious, what, what's the big question that you've been wrestling to the ground? <laughs> uh, it's sort of, I have different variations of it. Uh, and I'm okay with that because sometimes actually putting it into language limits it a little, but the essence of it is more change makering in the world. And it's a weird way of saying that more change makering. What does that mean? It's more <laughs> language around possibility. Um, so how can I contribute to having way more change makers in the world is a really simple version of that question. I was asked yesterday, you know, what's your vision for 10 years? And I said, actually, again, in the public arena, in our media, in our politics, uh, in our, our organisations, having way more people, uh, and conversation which is possibility focused as opposed to problem focused and leaders and change makers being the ones who lead that and frame that conversation. Uh, so my big question is how do I contribute to that being the norm in society? Yeah, that's lovely. Mm. I think there's a paradox also with change and it comes up when I talk to Dan and Kieran, the Impossible Institute, when they talk about, you know, there's a lot of talk about change and what we need to change. And there's a lot, their, yeah. their key principles in their latest book is there's a lot of stuff that isn't changing that we need yeah. to maintain. So I love how that do you, book. yeah, it's a great book and it's an interesting concept. And I'm wondering how that sits with you as somebody who's pioneering change making, change makering in the world is... <laughs> What are the elements that we need to bring with us? Like, what's the constants that... So there's, there's change and there's yeah. constants and yeah. continuity. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I think in terms of leadership and change makers, actually it's all about the people. That's a constant, like I said before, it's always has been. In, in Maori, uh, there's a lovely saying, you know, what's the most important thing? It's the people, it's the people, it's the people. He tangata, he tangata, he tangata. And that's what's the most important thing in the world. It's the people. And if we remember that, then we're on a, we have a lovely foundation. So I think that's a constant. I think another constant that's always been important, but maybe not valued is, is self-awareness. You know, it's the old know thyself, the Oracle at Delphi stuff, right? It's this, it's this idea that, the more we can slow down and listen to ourselves and observe ourselves and how we're showing up and how we're making decisions, particularly in the moment, I think is something that has always been important. And what I fear is that we are losing in a rush society, the skill of being able to just sit with ourselves and notice ourselves. And I think there's a yearning for that at the moment because there's a constant around it. The more choiceful we are, the more aware we are. Um, I think the better we can make decisions, we can get out of reactive mode and more into creative mode. So those two things, I think a connection with people and mindfulness about the people and you're a person. And so know who you are and have that awareness as well. Mm. I like that. So some of it speaks to what are the constant values that we need to underpin everything. Yeah. And um, it's interesting, though, because I think when I do values work, I always think about what are the hierarchy of the values and your response is my response too, which is like the people are <laughs> most important thing. And then I'm mirroring this or bringing it up against the current dialogue around climate change and the planet comes first and there's contrasting values around that you know is business first mm. is planet first is people first 
In that kind of discourse, planet versus people, is there a planet versus people conversation? Or how do you see the hierarchy of values when we think about our habitat and the agendas yeah. we have for people? Oh, what a great, what a great question. You know where my mind goes with that? I don't think hierarchy, I think polarity. So it's not or, it's not like one is more important than the other. It's an and conversation, not an or conversation, right? So climate change. I suppose you could argue that, well, if we didn't have a planet, we wouldn't have people. So probably planet is more important. And on the other hand, people shape the health of the planet to probably more degree than I think we're mostly willing to admit. Um, certainly have over the last hundred years or so. So the people's mindset and a sense of ownership and stewardship of planet is really important. So, so to me, they're kind of like, well, they have to be in tandem. Like, you know, it's the yin and yang here. So I know the well-being of the people is only going to be uh, guaranteed by the health of the planet. I don't know if I'm asking the question. Yeah. No, it's a, it was a curly one. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what yeah. Debbie thinks about this. <laughs> Thanks. And, um, <laughs> that was not a pre-prepared question. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's an important one. And, and one of the questions I did have for you, which I sent to you, which is what do you think is changing in leadership? And I think you've spoken a lot to that, is that mm. we've got to move away from binary thinking. You know, is, yeah, is it people totally. versus planet? And the conversation of and is such a powerful one. And I think that's, I'm answering my own question and then I'll get, give you a chance to answer <laughs> it. I think that's one of the things that needs to change and should be changing in in leadership is how can we have more and questions? Yeah. And uh, and like that, because I think we're seeing it in American politics, in Australian politics, in conversations around climate change, that we're not getting solutions and breakthrough because we're going, this is more important than that, instead of asking this and that, how do we work? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. And yeah, Barry Johnson, um, he's uh, the originator of this guy called Polarity Management. Um, it's all about polarity thinking, and he's got a process that you can run, which is about being able to see something as not binary, but actually complementary. And how do you maximize, you know, for example, a classic one is risk management versus innovation. And when you have versus, you know, the idea is it's a competition and one needs to win out. Do we actually just we focus on risk management and we don't do innovation? No. Um, and his classic uh, idea is that, you know, what's better, breathing in or breathing out? Dumb question, wrong question. You need both, otherwise you die. If you breathe in too much, you'll die. If you breathe out too much, <laughs> you don't breathe in, you'll die. Uh, the idea of breathing is, is the health of the system. And so, you know, to stay alive. So you actually need to maximize the tension between breathing in and breathing out. And that's called the breathing system. And if you th see things as, as polarities that are complementary like that, uh, risk management uh, versus innovation, climate change versus business or something like that, and you make it an and rather than a versus, you open up a whole different conversation. It's a different frame. It starts with the right question, though. And so how do we maximize the value of both of these things and the tension that's inherent as opposed to trying to make it go away? I think also is knowing what the thresholds are because part of Barry Johnson's process is, is mapping out, like, what are the extremes? Like, if we focus too much on planet, what are the benefits of that and what are the drawbacks of that? And I think it's the same for people. And um, I think that's sometimes where we get caught up is like, we don't know 
where the excesses could go, or we don't think about them. That's probably a better, better observation. So let's ask the question that I wanted to ask you, which is, what do you think is the future of leadership? Like, where's leadership heading in your point of view? Mm. I think we've already answered it. I think it's the, it's the ability to create a better and different future, which is always what leadership's been about. I think the shift, Peter Block wrote a lovely article called From Leadership to Citizenship. And I, it re- really grabbed me. It's a little old now, maybe 10 years old. Uh, and he talks about this idea of come down from the stage. And, you know, we've talked a lot of conversation over the years about, you know, move away from hero leadership. And I just loved his framing around be one of us as a leader. You're one of us. You're not apart from us. So sit down, come down from the stage and catalyze conversation with us and lead a conversation about possibility that we all get to contribute to. So one way I've been experimenting with that idea is whenever we have a Changemakers Day, for example, we have a guest come along. And the traditional mold of a guest is to come along with wisdom that they impart and expertise to say, here's my backstory, here's what I did, here's the lessons learned, and this is what you should do too. And there's a kind of, that's the subtext a lot of the time. We don't do that. We frame the guest as the guest conversationalist and their job is to come in and catalyze conversation. So the lady we had yesterday who was tackling child poverty in New Zealand, her brief was to come and lob a question into the circle of the group and then to facilitate conversation around that question, which was actually less about child poverty. It was more about how do we build collective responsibility? for making change happen. Now, to me, that's the future of leadership because there's no answer that resides in one person. As much as Donald Trump would like to tell us that, the answers don't reside in a person. The answers reside in a collective. And if if the leadership, leadership can be about catalyzing conversation for new possible futures to emerge, man, that's what we need right now. More of that. It requires ego to be on the back burner and it requires curiosity to be dialed right up and the ability to connect with people around a question to catalyze conversation, to just put aside your preconceived ideas. I noticed our guest yesterday, there was some suggestions and ideas that popped up in the conversation and she was kind of going a bit into defensive mode. Like, Oh, we tried that. No, I don't think that'll work. And then she caught herself. It was really interesting. She went, huh, hang on, look at how I'm limiting the possibility here. It was lovely for her to say that in the conversation too. Mm-hmm. That to me is where leadership needs to go. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I like that. Exploring possibility is so murky. And I think my next question is like, how are, are all the achievers going to go with this, right? Because like, a conversation <laughs> like that is open it's blue sky, it's gray, there's no definitive ending, there's no clear answers. And I think this is one of the key challenges that as stewards of leadership we need to help people navigate is that we need to help people get out of the need for results and traction and action. and Delivery and discovery, right? Delivery and discovery, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know what? Again, I think maybe let's not have it as a binary you're achiever or you're not, or that's probably not the frame, right? But I think the skill is... I think you know this, Zoe. I think the skill is in being able to know when to dial up the achiever, the deliverer, Mm. and just make some stuff happen, Mm. right? And then 
the capacity to be able to go, actually, it's now not the time for focusing on achieving, but actually it's the time to focus on exploration, discovery and learning and creating new possibilities. So it's kind of more of an end thing again, as opposed to just being a achiever or not being an achiever. I think it's like, okay, actually now we need to get into action. And that, you know, in this whole idea of you know, evolving consciousness around leadership, I think that's about uh, become more of a strategist, more of a, you know, oh, okay, I can do the achiever thing, but now's not the time for it. Mm. And be able to step back and go, now slow down, we need a different sort of conversation. So you're somebody who reads a lot and is inspired <laughs> by big ideas. I'm curious about, well, two parts of the question really is what's inspiring you right now? sort of like a specific one and more of a design of that how do you go about being inspired like how do you you know pay attention seek ideas yeah be open to them oh what a great question let me ask the easy one first what's inspiring me right now so um i read over the summer a book called essentialism by greg mccowan or McEwen, m-c-k-e-o-w-n i think essentialism and the subtitle is the disciplined pursuit of less and it's totally grabbed me and I've just recommended it to so many people. He asks this kind of core question, which is like something like, what's the one thing I could do today, this week, this month, this year, that if I did that, then everything else would become easier or unnecessary. So it's like the domino effect, right? If I just had this lead domino action, choice, decision, then everything else would start moving. And I've been trying to put that into practice over the last month or so. It's actually quite hard because I think, you know, I'm conditioned probably like a lot of us that to use priorities, not priority. It's like, what are our priorities today? So actually, no, the idea of priorities is not quite right. Priority means the first thing, right? So like, what's the first thing? And so I've been really trying hard to go, what's the first thing that will make everything else easier or necessary if I just did that? And there's one thing. And as I've been practicing it, I've been noticing how stuff's just easier. Just stuff's getting done or stuff actually falls off because I thought it was important once, but actually it's not. So it's, a, it's the disciplined pursuit of less. I love the discipline. There's a definitely a good read, really accessible uh, book to read. So that's inspired me. Well, there's an art of choosing, like being able to figure out what the domino is either as well. Oh, isn't it? Like it comes back to big question. It comes back to what am I here to do? What's my priority? Uh, and you need to decide that. Someone else can't decide that for you. I think it's about saying what really matters. Uh, you know, if there's only one thing I could do you know, this year that would really make a difference, what would that be? That might be investing time with my teenage kids every night. You know, put that first. Uh, it doesn't have to be a big highfalutin thing. It might be a small daily habit. Like I meditate every day. If I just did that every day, then everything else becomes easier or necessary. Okay. <laughs> it's simple stuff like that. It doesn't yeah. have to be the big strategic thing. Okay, awesome. Well, let's go for the big meta question <laughs> that you put your arms in the air for, <laughs> which is how do you actually design for inspiration? Yeah, gosh, I don't think I've ever been asked that before. So I have to make some stuff up. Um, uh, what do I do? I try to live life by design. Uh, and I've learned over the years, what does that mean for me is uh, there's environment, and environment, I mean, physical environment. There's people, 
And then there's something third, which I would say is around knowing what lights me up when I do something. So let me just talk you through those two. So physical environment, I've learned through lots of different blind alleys that I love big open spaces to look at. I've lived in London where I've had no view. I've lived in the country where the view is okay, but there's hills and I couldn't see very far. Now I live right on the beach and I can look right across to the South Island of New Zealand. I live in the North Island. I can see across the Cook Strait. If I turn my head left 90 degrees, I'm looking at the South Island right now. Now that inspires me. So environment like that, I've got lots of natural light where I work and it's awesome. So surrounding myself by that just gives me lightness. People, you know, there's that lovely saying, you're you're the average of the five people you spend most time with. So I'm very, very deliberate about who I hang with. And I'm fortunate enough to have you in my crew, Zoe. That, you know, it's like people who, who light me up, they don't have to be like me, but they, they need to help me grow and learn and just lift my spirit, right? So, in fact, I love a bit of challenge. So, people like that. So, deliberately hanging out with people that give me energy. And the third one is, I guess, just knowing through, again, deliberate practice, what are the things that get me into the zone? So, for example, I... When I go mountain biking, I just generate ideas. And in fact, I, I've learned now I have to take a little notebook with me <laughs> and I'll stop on the trailer. Oh, epiphany, write it down before it goes, you know. I've learned that I'm way better at creative work in the morning than the afternoon. And you know, Paul Graham from Y Combinator, I think, he, he talks about having creating your days with manager time and maker time. Manager time is when you're doing tasks that are kind of admin-y and maybe they're responding to other people's needs. Maker time is when you're in creative mode. And I've learned for me that creative mode for me is mornings. And so I try as much as possible uh, to carve out time just to write blogs and noodle and create ideas. And yeah, so doing all that stuff. So that's what keeps me inspired. The, probably the, the other one probably is a blend of all three is travel. Uh, you know, you and I have, are both huge lovers of travel and I'm always mystified about people who don't have a passport, <laughs> who are grown-ups, right? Like, what's that about? Like, there's this huge world out there. Man, we could learn so much. I've just been to Japan for the first time. Blew my mind. I'm just learning stuff I didn't really know that I didn't know, you know, just seeing difference. And that's that discovery bit again. So getting on a plane, I have to get out of New Zealand as much as it's a great place to live. At least well, I get out probably six times a year. And I aim to be in two new places each of those years as well. So Japan's one. I'm not sure where the next one is. I went to Mexico last year just because it was different, you know. That always inspires me. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love travel too and adventure. So for me, I, I combine them in a slightly different way. So big open spaces in wilderness adventure is one of the ways that I tap inspiration, uh, for sure. I always get new insight and perspective yeah. in big, wide open spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, being inside all day or not seeing the sun or not seeing a horizon. In fact, to me, it's about horizon. If I can see a horizon, and I've learned actually why I live on the coast, I think, is because, and this is kind of deep, I guess, it's that. I reckon I live at the point and I work at the point as, as in the work I do between the known and the unknown, the liminal, right? Or, or, or the constant and the ever-changing. So the constant is like the land. It's pretty solid. Although in New Zealand, maybe not so much earthquake zone. And then you've got this ever-changing ocean. 
And I'm sort of at the point where those two things meet. Yeah. And, you know, I reckon that's where I do my best work. Where it's like, where's your edge of the unknown? And I want to push people more into the water, more into the ocean, where it's a little bit scarier. But, man, it's so uplifting being there if you can get comfortable there. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Digby, (laughs) this conversation (laughs) is so rich and deep. I love it. And uh, it's such a privilege to have you in my world that I'm so excited to share you with my audience and the fabulous people listening. Uh, if people want to check you out, because you're, let's face it, a total dude, where can they find you? On the beach. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, uh, in cyberspace, uh, digbyscott.com is my uh, website. Uh, and LinkedIn is my main sort of way I'm out there communicating with the world as well. So both yeah. of those, are the uh, you can find me, Digby Scott. Great. We'll so, put yeah. all the links. I'll try and chase down the links to all the books that you mm-hmm. surreptitiously name dropped throughout the whole conversation <laughs> so that the people can have access to those for the ones that um, they're keen on. So you all that will be in the show notes. That The photo you took of me, uh, there's a bookshelf behind me. If people zoom in on that photo, they can probably see a lot of the other books that I've read as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like the screenshot I just took at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome, Zoe. It's been fun. Thank you, Digby. Have a spectacular day. I'm sure you will. And you too. Well, I'm not sure about you, but I adored that interview. I had so much fun exploring some of the key topics with Digby. And I guess my top three takeaways are... The idea that we need to move from leadership to citizenship. I think that's a massive concept that I want to cogitate more on. The next piece for me was how to wrestle your big idea to the ground. And I love this as a provocative, forward-calling notion that can ask us to be and do more in the world. I love it. And the other piece is the magic of the horizon. I agree with Digby on that. When we can see her horizon, things just crack open. I've always believed that big views equals big insights. And I love the analogy or the reference back to horizons. So good. So like Digby, I love to work on the people stuff in culture. In fact, if that's you and you want to know if you're doing okay in culture and how you could be better, let's have a strategy session. What happens is I'll send you a audit that you can complete, just a list of 36 odd questions that gives us an indication of how you're doing in your culture competencies. And then we hop on a Zoom link and we have a quick debrief around that to highlight what are the areas that you would like to uh, consolidate or improve or initiate in your culture. And we can talk about whether I can help you with that or not. No pressure, no agenda, just wanna be in service, love hearing about leaders who care about culture and their people. If that's you, Zoe at intercompass.com. Just put strategy session in the subject line and we'll get sorted. All right. In the meantime, lead well, live well.